Section nine of White Knights and Other Stories by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Notes from Underground by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translated from the Russian by Constance Garnett. Part one Underground. Chapter nine. Gentlemen, I am joking and i know myself that my jokes are not brilliant but you know one can't take everything as a joke i am perhaps jesting against the grain gentlemen i am tormented by questions answer them for me you for instance want to cure men of their old habits and reform their will in accordance with science and good sense but how do you know not only that it is possible but also that it is desirable to reform man in that way and what leads you to the conclusion that man's inclinations need reforming? In short, how do you know that such a reformation will be a benefit to man? And to go to the root of the matter, why are you so positively convinced that not to act against his real normal interests, guaranteed by the conclusions of reason and arithmetic, is certainly always advantageous for man, and must always be a law for mankind? So far, you know, this is only your supposition. It may be the law of logic, but not the law of humanity. You think, gentlemen, perhaps that I am mad. Allow me to defend myself. I agree that man is preeminently a creative animal, predestined to strive consciously for an object, and to engage in engineering, that is, incessantly and eternally to make new roads wherever they may lead. But the reason why he wants sometimes to go off at a tangent may just be that he is predestined to make the road, and perhaps, too, that however stupid the direct practical man may be, the thought sometimes will occur to him that the road almost always does lead somewhere, and that the destination it leads to is less important than the process of making it, and that the chief thing is to save the well-conducted child from despising engineering and so giving way to the fatal idleness, which, as we all know, is the mother of all the vices. Man likes to make roads, and to create. That is a fact beyond dispute. But why has he such a passionate love, for destruction and chaos also? Tell me that. But on that point I want to say a couple of words myself. May it not be that he loves chaos and destruction, there can be no disputing that he does sometimes love it, because he is instinctively afraid of attaining his object and completing the edifice he is constructing. Who knows, perhaps he only loves that edifice from a distance, and is by no means in love with it at close quarters. Perhaps he only loves building it, and does not want to live in it, but will leave it when completed for the use of les animaux domestiques, such as the ants, the sheep, and so on. Now the ants have quite a different taste. They have a marvelous edifice of that pattern which endures forever, the ant-heap. With the ant-heap, the respectable race of ants began, and with the ant-heap they will probably end, which does the greatest credit to their perseverance and good sense. But man is a frivolous and incongruous creature, and perhaps, like a chess player, loves the process of the game, not the end of it. And who knows? There is no saying with certainty Perhaps the only goal on earth to which mankind is striving lies in this incessant process of attaining, in other words, in life itself, 
and not in the thing to be attained, which must always be expressed as a formula, as positive as twice two makes four. And such positiveness is not life, gentlemen, but is the beginning of death. Anyway, man has always been afraid of this mathematical certainty, and I am afraid of it now. Granted that man does nothing but seek that mathematical certainty, he traverses oceans, sacrifices his life in the quest, but to succeed, really to find it, he dreads, I assure you. He feels that when he has found it, there will be nothing for him to look for. When workmen have finished their work, they do at least receive their pay, they go to the tavern, then they are taken to the police station, and there is occupation for a week. But where can man go? Anyway, one can observe a certain awkwardness about him when he has attained such objects. He loves the process of attaining, but he does not quite like to have attained, and that, of course, is very absurd. In fact, man is a comical creature. There seems to be a kind of jest in it all. But yet mathematical certainty is, after all, something insufferable. Twice two makes four seems to me simply a piece of insolence. Twice two makes four is a pert coxcomb, who stands with arms akimbo, barring your path and spitting. I admit that twice two makes four is an excellent thing, but if we are to give everything its due, twice two makes five is sometimes a very charming thing, too. And why are you so firmly, so triumphantly convinced that only the normal and the positive, in other words, only what is conducive to welfare, is for the advantage of man? Is not reason in error as regards advantage? Does not man, perhaps, love something besides well-being? Perhaps he is just as fond of suffering. Perhaps suffering is just as great a benefit to him as well-being. Man is sometimes extraordinarily, passionately, in love with suffering. And that is a fact. There is no need to appeal to universal history to prove that. Only ask yourself, if you are a man and have lived at all. As far as my personal opinion is concerned, to care only for well-being seems to me positively ill-bred. Whether it's good or bad, it is sometimes very pleasant, too, to smash things. I hold no brief for suffering, nor for well-being, either. I am standing for my caprice, and for its being guaranteed to me when necessary. Suffering would be out of place in vaudevilles, for instance. I know that. In the palace of crystal it is unthinkable. Suffering means doubt, negation, and what would be the good of a palace of crystal if there could be any doubt about it? And yet I think man will never renounce real suffering, that is, destruction and chaos. Why, suffering is the solo origin of consciousness. Though I did lay it down at the beginning that consciousness is the greatest misfortune for man, yet I know man prizes it, and would not give it up for any satisfaction. Consciousness, for instance, is infinitely superior to twice two makes four. Once you have mathematical certainty, there is nothing left to do or to understand. There will be nothing left but to bottle up your five senses and plunge into contemplation. While if you stick to consciousness, even though the same result is attained, you can at least flog yourself at times, and that will, at any rate, liven you up. Reactionary as it is, 
Corporal punishment is better than nothing. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 You believe in a palace of crystal that can never be destroyed, a palace at which one will not be able to put out one's tongue or make a long nose on the sly, and perhaps that is just why I am afraid of this edifice, that it is of crystal and can never be destroyed, and that one cannot put one's tongue out at it, even on the sly. You see, if it were not a palace but a hen-house, I might creep into it to avoid getting wet, and yet I would not call the hen-house a palace out of gratitude to it for keeping me dry. You laugh and say that in such circumstances a hen-house is as good as a mansion. Yes, I answer, if one had to live simply to keep out of the rain. But what is to be done if I have taken it into my head that that is not the only object in life, and that if one must live, one had better live in a mansion? That is my choice, my desire. You will only eradicate it when you have changed my preference. Well, do change it. Allure me with something else. Give me another ideal. But meanwhile, I will not take a henhouse for a mansion. The palace of crystal may be an idle dream. It may be that it is inconsistent with the laws of nature, and that I have invented it only through my own stupidity, through the old-fashioned irrational habits of my generation. But what does it matter to me that it is inconsistent? That makes no difference, since it exists in my desires, or rather exists as long as my desires exist. Perhaps you are laughing again. Laugh away. I will put up with any mockery, rather than pretend I am satisfied when I am hungry. I know, anyway, that I will not be put off with a compromise, with a recurring zero, simply because it is consistent with the laws of nature and actually exists. I will not accept as the crown of my desires a block of buildings with tenements for the poor on a lease of a thousand years, and perhaps with a signboard of a dentist hanging out. Destroy my desires, eradicate my ideals, show me something better, and I will follow you. You will say, perhaps, that it is not worth your trouble, but in that case I can give you the same answer. We are discussing things seriously, but if you won't deign to give me your attention, I will drop your acquaintance. I can retreat into my underground hole. But while I am alive and have desires, I would rather my hands were withered off than bring one brick to such a building. Don't remind me that I have just rejected the palace of crystal for the sole reason that one cannot put out one's tongue at it. I did not say it because I am so fond of putting my tongue out. Perhaps the thing I resented was that of all your edifices, there has not been one at which one could not put out one's tongue. On the contrary, I would let my tongue be cut off out of gratitude if things could be so arranged that I should lose all desire to put it out. It is not my fault that things cannot be so arranged, and that one must be satisfied with model flats. Then why am I made with such desires? Can I have been constructed simply in order to come to the conclusion that all my construction is a cheat. Can this be my whole purpose? I do not believe it. But do you know what? I am convinced that we underground folk ought to be kept on a curb. Though we may sit forty years underground without speaking, when we do come out into the light of day and break out, we talk 
and talk and talk. End of chapter 10. Chapter 11. The long and short of it is, gentlemen, that it is better to do nothing, better conscious inertia, and so hurrah for underground. Though I have said that I envy the normal man to the last drop of my bile, yet I should not care to be in his place, such as he is now, though I shall not cease envying him. No, no. Anyway, the underground life is more advantageous. There, at any rate, one can. Oh, but even now I am lying. I am lying because I know myself that it is not underground that is better, but something different, quite different, for which I am thirsting, but which I cannot find. Damn underground. I will tell you another thing that would be better, and that is, if I myself believed in anything of what I have just written, I swear to you, gentlemen, there is not one thing, not one word of what I have written, that I really believe. That is, I believe it, perhaps, but at the same time, I feel and suspect that I am lying like a cobbler. Then why have you written all this, you will say to me? I ought to put you underground for forty years without anything to do, and then come to you in your cellar and find out what stage you have reached. How can a man be left with nothing to do for forty years? Isn't that shameful? Isn't that humiliating, you will say, perhaps, wagging your heads contemptuously? You thirst for life and try to settle the problems of life by a logical tangle. And how persistent, how insolent are your sallies. And at the same time, what a scare you are in. You talk nonsense and are pleased with it. You say impudent things and are in continual alarm and apologizing for them. You declare that you are afraid of nothing, and at the same time try to ingratiate yourself in our good opinion. You declare that you are gnashing your teeth, and at the same time you try to be witty, so as to amuse us. You know that your witticisms are not witty, but you are evidently well satisfied with their literary value. You may perhaps have really suffered, but you have no respect for your own suffering. You may have sincerity, but you have no modesty. Out of the pettiest vanity, you expose your sincerity to publicity and ignominy. You doubtlessly mean to say something, but hide your last word through fear, because you have not the resolution to utter it, and only have a cowardly impudence. You boast of consciousness, but you are not sure of your ground, for though your mind works, yet your heart is darkened and corrupt, and you cannot have a full, genuine consciousness without a pure heart. And how intrusive you are, how you insist and grimace. Lies, lies, lies. Of course I have myself made up all the things you say. That, too, is from underground. I have been for forty years listening to you through a crack under the floor. I have invented them myself. There was nothing else I could invent. It is no wonder that I have learned it by heart, and it has taken a literary form. But can you really be so credulous as to think that I will print all this and give it to you to read, too? And another problem. Why do I call you gentlemen? Why do I address you as though you really were my readers? Such confessions as I intend to make are never printed nor given to other people to read. Anyway, I am not strong-minded enough for that, and I don't see why I should be. 
for you see a fancy has occurred to me and i want to realize it at all costs let me explain every man has reminiscences which he would not tell to everyone but only to his friends he has other matters in his mind which he would not reveal even to his friends but only to himself and that in secret but there are other things which a man is afraid to tell even to himself and every decent man has a number of such things stored away in his mind the more decent he is the greater the number of such things in his mind anyway i have only lately determined to remember some of my early adventures till now i have always avoided them even with a certain uneasiness now when i am not only recalling them but have actually decided to write an account of them i want to try the experiment whether one can even with oneself be perfectly open and not take fright at the whole truth i will observe in parenthesis that hein says that a true autobiography is almost an impossibility and that a man is bound to lie about himself he considers that rousseau certainly told lies about himself in his confessions and even intentionally lied out of vanity i am convinced that hein is right i quite understand how sometimes one may out of sheer vanity attribute regular crimes to oneself and indeed i can very well conceive that kind of vanity but hein judged the people who made their confessions to the public i write only for myself and i wish to declare once and for all that if i write as though i were addressing readers that is simply because it is easier for me to write in that form it is a form an empty form i shall never have readers i have made this plain already i don't wish to be hampered by any restrictions in the compilation of my notes i shall not attempt any system or method i will jot things down as i remember them but here perhaps someone will catch at the word and ask me if you really don't reckon on readers why do you make such compacts with yourself and on paper too that is that you won't attempt any system or method that you jot things down as you remember them and so on and so on why are you explaining why do you apologize well there it is i answer there is a whole psychology in all this though perhaps it is simply that i am a coward and perhaps that i purposely imagine an audience before me in order that i may be more dignified while i write there are perhaps thousands of reasons again what is my object precisely in writing if it is not for the benefit of the public why should i not simply recall these incidents in my own mind without putting them on paper quite so but yet it is more imposing on paper there is something more impressive in it i shall be better able to criticize myself and improve my style besides i shall perhaps obtain actual relief from writing today for instance i am particularly oppressed by one memory of a distant past it came back vividly to my mind a few days ago and has remained haunting me like an annoying tune that one cannot get rid of and yet i must get rid of it somehow i have hundreds of such reminiscences but at times some one stands out from the hundred and oppresses me for some reason i believe that if i write it down i should get rid of it why not try besides i am bored and i never have anything to do writing will be a sort of work they say work makes man kind-hearted and honest 
Well, here is a chance for me, anyway. Snow is falling today, yellow and dingy. It fell yesterday, too, and a few days ago. I fancy it is the wet snow that has reminded me of that incident, which I cannot shake off now. And so let it be a story apropos of the falling snow. End of chapter 11 End of part 1, Underground